Well, it, you know, it, it did have to do with knowing somebody from Gatorade because okay. when I was a PhD student at Ohio State, uh, my professor in one of my classes asked for volunteers for a study, research study. So I thought, well, that, that sounds like it, it would be interesting. And it turned out to be a study sponsored by Gatorade. And so I met some of those uh, Gatorade employees at the time, stayed in touch with them at scientific meetings over the years after I had graduated and, and gone to become a professor at Boise State University mm -hmm. in Idaho. And uh, when the position opened in 1985 to create an internal exercise physiology laboratory for Gatorade, uh, they fortunately remembered me and uh, gave me an opportunity to apply and everything worked out. So I left the, the mountains of Idaho for the flatlands of Chicago and been here ever since. This episode of the Smart Athlete Podcast is brought to you by Solpre. If you're active at all, whether you're running or simply out walking for the day, you've probably experienced one of the number one problems that active people have, and that's chafing. Solpre's all new all-natural anti-chafe balm solves that problem while feeding your skin the vital nutrients it needs to be healthy. If you'd like to stop chafing once and for all and treat your body right, go to Solpri.com to check out the anti-chafe balm today. And that's S-O-L-P-R-I.com. Welcome to the Smart Athlete Podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Funk. My guest today has his PhD in exercise physiology he is the co-founder of the Gatorade Sports Science Institute, so really happy to have him here. Um, he's a fellow of the American College of Sports Medicine and co-author of the Practical Guide to Exercise Physiology, which I am fortunate enough to have a copy of. Welcome to the show, Dr. Bob Murray. Hey, thank you, Jesse. It's like, as I was saying before we got going, Dr. Bob, people don't know because um, we've been talking. Uh, we had a little mix-up, so I appreciate you making the, uh, making the adjustments to still spend some time with me. Um, I always love the, just having the opportunity to speak to people like you. Um, I know the Gary Sports Science Institute is a big name for a lot of people that are interested in this field in general. I'll say, I'll say sports science just to cover us, um, but because they do so much research, um, you know, having you here is, is uh, wonderful. So thank you for joining me. Yeah, you're welcome. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. Um, so, I want to ask about that a little bit. Um, you made the transition, and correct me if I'm wrong at any point, uh, made the transition from coaching to founding the Institute. How did that, how did it all come about? Were you just like hanging out? Did you know people from Gatorade? Like how, how did that connection get made? Well, it, you know, it, it did have to do with knowing somebody from Gatorade because okay. when I was a PhD student at Ohio State, uh, my professor in one of my classes asked for volunteers for a study, research study. So I thought, well, that, that sounds like it, it would be interesting. And it turned out to be a study sponsored by Gatorade. And so I met some of those uh, Gatorade employees at the time, stayed in touch with them at scientific meetings over the years after I had graduated and, and gone to become a professor at Boise State University mm -hmm. in Idaho. And uh, when the position opened in 1985, to create an internal exercise physiology laboratory for Gatorade. Uh, they fortunately remembered me and uh, gave me an opportunity to apply and everything worked out. So I left the, the mountains of Idaho for the flatlands of Chicago and been here ever since. See, it's always interesting, you know, I, so I talked to a lot of people who have very interesting stories and it, 
when you look back, you know, you have that hindsight. It always looks like everything's very kind of neat. It's like, well, well, we met up, we kept in touch. And in this narrative that gets built up for us and for you in particular to kind of be able to found these things almost seems like luck, right? I don't necessarily believe so much in luck, um, at least in the large part. Um, but, you know, have you ever had any people, anybody say, oh, well, you're just, you're just lucky to have done this or that? Or do you feel, feel that way yourself? No, I, I don't feel lucky. And uh, I quickly correct people. There, there's a big yeah. difference between being lucky and being fortunate. And I feel right. like I've, I've been very fortunate. Yeah. Not only the decisions that I made, because as you alluded, you know, it's often a very uh, broken road, a very messy path between yeah. what you think you're going to end up doing with your life and what you actually end up doing. And, and that was certainly the case for me uh, because yeah. I, I started out wanting to be a high school physical education teacher and coach. And when I realized that that wasn't the right fit for me, then I got my master's degree and started working at the university level. And I realized that I didn't know enough to, to feel comfortable. And I went back and got my PhD thinking that I'd spend the rest of my life as a college professor. Mm -hmm. uh, but when the Gatorade opportunity came along, I realized it was kind of a once in a lifetime chance to try something new and different. Mm -hmm. So uh, leaving academia was, it was one of the toughest decisions I've ever made because I really enjoyed teaching. I enjoyed the university environment, but it turns out to be the best decision I've made because I, the experience I had at Gatorade, the challenges, the people I met, the opportunities I had uh, professionally and personally just wouldn't have been matched had I stayed where I was. So I, I consider myself very fortunate to yeah. be not only in the right place at the right time, meeting the right people, but uh, also making the right decisions and and believing that hard work eventually pays off. I think you know, thinking about that decision to to leave, you know, I speak to a lot of academics and I speak to a lot of people in, in private enterprise as well, working in some of the companies kind of working on, I'll say exercise tech as a general mm -hmm. bubble. It could be, you know, wearables or, you know, measuring devices, any of that kind of stuff. And I've talked to a, a, at least one person in my mind who's kind of been on the fence of, should I leave academia? Should I go back to like should I leave private enterprise should I go back like they've kind of waffled between the two um do you recall or have you built up any kind of feelings on how to make that decision when a big opportunity presents itself because I think we all find ourselves at crossroads sooner or later right where it's do I do this or do I do that sometimes major sometimes minor um but how do you how do you come to the decision to to take that leap to to leave where you thought you should be and and try this new thing that at the time obviously wasn't anything you know resembling what it is today yeah uh, well for me it was just a matter of uh, number one having the opportunity and sort of being pursued in that regard so that was okay. nice and second it was uh, me sitting back and thinking, okay, I've been in academia now for eight years. I, I'm super comfortable, I really like it. Uh, but as I look another eight or 10 years or 20 years down the line, I see me doing pretty much the same thing. And you know, I wasn't 100% convinced that I'd be happy with that. So when the opportunity to join the corporate world came along, 
it, you know, I was young enough at that time, mm -hmm. thinking that, okay, if this is a big mistake, it's not going to be the worst thing that's ever happened to me. Yeah. So let me take the leap and give it five years. But 23 years later, <laughs> I was still in the corporate world uh, yeah. with a lot, with still an, a, a foot in academia. So that really helped. Yeah. But it was, it was not an easy transition. It was, you know, a real culture shock for me. It took me a good six months to feel comfortable in my corporate shoes. Right. And, uh, but after that, it was, it was fine. So I know um, from speaking to academics, as I'd mentioned, that oftentimes like funding for the kind of research they want to do can be difficult. And I think when I speak to people that have funding for their research, they're always, you know, I'm very fortunate to have this grant. I'm very happy to have it and be able to do what I want to do. How, how does that situation work at, at Gatorade? Are, are you directed by the company, hey, we want to know about this. Can you go look into it? Or is it, you know, Dr. Bob saying, hey, Mr. CEO, I'd, I'd love to look at these things. I think they could positively, you know, uh, affect the company. Or, or how does that interplay of figuring out what to research happen in that environment? Well, in the 20 years that I was there, I had uh, uh, pretty much carte blanche in Okay. what we did with our extramural research funding. Right. So uh, the company relied upon us to make those kinds of decisions uh, in concert with our business partners on, right. the, on the business side of Gatorade uh, to make sure that what we were doing both internally and externally uh, met their needs, mm -hmm. what their goals and objectives were. Um, but then uh, who we worked with, the precise nature of the project uh, was all left up to us. So it was an absolutely ideal situation. Yeah. It was like that. That's what I was kind of hoping the situation was just to think about, you know, if you come from an academic background and you enjoy the research and if funding is one of the biggest like blockades in your way of doing what you want to do, then being in an environment where you're like, I can pretty much kind of study the all the kind of neat, interesting little things about sport in, in these areas um, that I want to seems like the ideal situation to be in. Yeah, it was a wonderful situation to be in. I feel blessed to have had that opportunity and very fortunate that uh, everybody in the senior management of Gatorade at that time was super supportive and uh, just said, listen, we hired you because you have the expertise that we don't have. Yeah. So go ahead and do what you think it needs to be done. Let us know the results of what you uh, discover and we'll make our decisions accordingly. And that's the way it uh, unfolded for the next two plus decades. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so then I, I guess the, the next question is how do you make the leap from I'm working in private enterprise to I'm bringing out a book um, and where does uh, Dr. Kenny come into play? Was he also at Gatorade with you or? Well, I'll tell you, in, I left Gatorade in 2008 to start a, my own consulting company. Okay. And uh, at that time, Larry Kenny was the uh, chairman of the Gatorade Scientific Advisory Board. I've known Larry since 1990. You know, we're obviously in the same field. Uh, he's always been a, a professor at Penn State, a past president of the American College of Sports Medicine, very highly regarded nationally and internationally. So when Larry said that uh, he had a project that he thought 
we could work on together, I just jumped at the opportunity. Mm -hmm. Because uh, as you may know, Larry's uh, undergraduate textbook, which is this beast yeah. called Physiology of Sport and Exercise, this is the best-selling undergraduate textbook in the country. But it's big, it's heavy, yeah. it's thick. And uh, for undergraduate exercise physiology majors, it's ideal. It's a great textbook. Uh, but for those many, many people who aren't uh, majoring in exercise physiology, but still have an interest in sports or fitness, uh, we thought, you know, there needs to be something else, another mm -hmm. resource that's not as big, not as thick, not as heavy, right, and right. not as scientifically dense. And so uh, we wrote the first edition of the Practical Guide to Exercise Physiology, mm -hmm. which came out in 2016 with the intent of creating something that was, um, I don't want to say, it's not a dumbed down version of Larry's book, but right. it's just a, a lighter version. Right. So that uh, I kind of tried to put myself in the shoes of a personal uh, trainer or fitness instructor, thinking, you know, what information do I need to have? Mm -hmm. If I'm just getting into exercise physiology, or if I've had an exercise physiology course or two in the past, but need my memory refreshed, uh, what kind of resource do I need? So when I wrote the uh, practical guide to exercise physiology, I kind of kept that framework in mind to provide information that could, that, uh, could be used immediately, that was highly practical, but science-based, uh, but more toward the practical side with as little text as possible and as many pictures and illustrations as we could cram into it. And, that's now the, the second edition of the uh, Practical Guide to Exercise Physiology, which I think it's a much improved cover and uh, the you know, content is, yeah. uh, is equally revised and hopefully improved. And now that this one just came out, I've already started on working on the third edition just by taking notes and you know, updating yeah. the science that's come out uh, uh, since the publication process. So it's, I mean, it's interesting that you said that, that was the goal because what I noticed going through the book and trying to digest all what's going on. Cause although I have, you know, some uh, background, maybe even too much to say, but I have some uh, knowledge about exercise physiology just by being an athlete, being around, being in, in that environment, interviewing people, all that kind of stuff. But it was not my major in any shape and form. So going through the book, the thing I noticed the most was the, the breadth of topics covered and it, it, at the same time it's not it's not a cursory examination of everything you do get like important details yet it's not too heady either mm -hmm. it, it that, yeah. that was the thing that stuck out to me most it was that you you cover so many things so many specific situations not just like Hey, let's talk about VO2 max and then here's what it is. And that's it. Like, you know, it, there, there's way more information and that comes up in a number of areas, but it isn't, it isn't so thick that you're like, I need another course before I can even <laughs> begin to digest this book. So I, I think um, if you'll allow me to give some assessment for whatever my opinion is worth, I think you accomplished your goal. <laughs> well, good. I, I'm really happy to hear that. It makes me feel, uh, that we were on the right track of right from the get-go. So thanks, I appreciate that. Yeah. I also wanted to have a text where somebody could pick it up, go through 
any any spot and, and it's not a book that needs to be read from front to back right um you know if if somebody finds something of interest they can just dive into it there and hopefully it'll it all makes sense to them even if they're missing some of the fundamental background i also right. wanted a book that people could look at and get as much from the illustrations as they do from the text because mm -hmm. i know a lot of people don't have the time uh uh or the dedication to read every every single word but enjoy looking at uh, illustrations and figures. And so we tried to make those come to life for those individuals who just wanted to take a look at the, uh, the visual part of it. Yeah, I was like, I mean, there's a lot of, inside the book, there's a lot of, um, I'll just say just illustrative uh, examples, but also, you know, extra, extra images. But then things are laid out nicely as well. Like when I got to the section, and this is something I think about a lot as an endurance athlete, fatigue, I'm thinking about uh, page 70, uh, but it's talking about all the different ways that your body fatigues through various kinds of exercise. And that's something that I think you, as any athlete participates in their sport, they know inherently, hey, like this thing makes me tired and I can't do it anymore, right? But it's like a very concise way to dive into what kind of exercise are you doing and what is your limiter? And then in, in essence, you can think about how can we improve that limiter by focusing on this is the thing that's stopping me all in half a page. <laughs> like that's the nice concise version of, of what we've got going on. Yeah. Yeah. And that's exactly what we tried to achieve. Let's, let's distill everything, the most important stuff down into the smallest package possible yeah, uh, keep it understandable, keep it accurate, and make it of practical value. Yeah, yeah. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you about, and I'll see if I can find it. I tried to make notes about pages, but this one I did not. Think about training at altitude, um, special exceptions at the back of the book. Um, I particular, oh, okay, yeah. I in particular, I, I, so I live in Kansas City, as I mentioned to you before we got going. Um, we're not particularly high in altitude. Uh, but our neighbors in Colorado are this, uh, I guess a year ago now, it was last November 1st, um, I went out and ran the incline. My coach and I had been looking for a new challenge for me. Um, and my college coach had always said to me, because he's from Colorado Springs, hey, you need to run the incline. Um, I'm assuming you're familiar with what the incline is. If not, it's a it's just shy of a mile long trail in Colorado Springs or Manitou Springs in particular, it averages about a 45% grade. So it's a very <laughs> difficult trail and it starts at 6,000 feet, ends at 8,000 feet. Um, so you mentioned training for altitude and the kind of um, almost pointlessness of it if you're just going to spend a few weeks and then come back and how, you know, it, it doesn't do the effect we quite want it to. But you mentioned something my current coach had mentioned to me, and that is showing up to a race as close to race time as possible if you're going from low to high. Um, yeah. But it doesn't really uh, uh, um, it doesn't really explain too much of why that is. Can can you share that with me? That's it's really just a personal <laughs> personal interest. Why is it that you want to show up as close to race time as possible? Um, because you have, you know, you have no time to adjust to altitude. So why is that beneficial? Well, it, it's beneficial because it, adjusting to altitude takes time. 
Mm -hmm. And uh, so if you don't have the luxury of being able to spend weeks at altitude before a competition, the best bet uh, in any type of a sport is just to get there as soon as you can before the competition and, uh, you know, hope for the best. Um, because that process of acclimating to altitude uh, initially involves a decrease in performance for a whole okay. variety of reasons. And so, you know, you don't want to risk that aspect of it by getting there a few days beforehand and, mm -hmm. and uh, suffering some from dehydration or sleep disturbance and, and uh, so on. You're, you're better off just taking your fittest self to the event and uh, hoping for the best. Okay. That makes sense. It makes a little more sense now where it's like, you're not going to have any adaptation, but you're also trying to avoid all the negative effects of, Hey, I've just been here for a few days and now I'm starting yeah. to go downhill before I get the, the ramp up again with um, extra red blood cells and all that kind of thing. Right. Yeah, yeah exactly. Okay. Yeah. And obviously that takes time. Right. It, that's, that's the thing I talk about. So I do another show on running and I, that's the thing I kind of harp more than anything is, consistency over time because it no matter what adaptation your body is doing it doesn't happen overnight so you kind of have to wait like there's almost a hurry up and wait mentality right where you do whatever your training load is you've you know decreased your fitness by breaking down muscle and then you've got to wait for your body to recover and compensate for that load and there's nothing you can do to speed that up well i won't say nothing but Relatively speaking, you know, you can't make it go, if it takes 24 hours to recover, you can't make it yourself recover in two hours. Yeah. 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 And that, that, that's a, an extraordinarily important and very much underappreciated aspect of training because mm -hmm. all the good stuff happens during recovery, during the right. rest period between training sessions. You know, the training is a stimulus. Right. Uh, now you have to, we have to wait for, a response. The harder we train, the longer we're going to have to wait to get the optimized response. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of things in that time that we can do to facilitate it. You know, staying well hydrated, eating right, uh, resting and sleeping correctly. Mm -hmm. uh, all these things help facilitate the response of the adaptations that we're looking for. And, uh, I you know, for most athletes who are highly motivated, working hard is not a problem. Right. Working too hard, too often, you know, too much workload, uh, uh, too steep increases from week to week in workload. All of those are the negatives that hold people back. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, having the right stimulus for athletes, most athletes is not an issue at all. Right. Having the right amount of recovery is. I, I know, um, and again, I wish, I, I don't think I made a mark where this was, but you talk about, I believe, personalization in here when you're thinking about designing a, a training schedule for a particular individual, right? Um, and I think that's one of the largest challenges for any coach, any trainer, anybody in charge of trying to maximize somebody's fitness is how do we dial in just the right amount of load to the right amount of rest for this particular person? Um, and again, I, I've forgotten. So if it's in the book, I apologize. Uh, is there is there a shortcut way to figure that out? Or is it a matter of we've got to build up some data about this individual and figure out how they respond over time and then adjust? Or can we do, is there any kind of like shortcut test and say, Hey, let's do the field test. Now we know you're probably going to respond this way or that way. Yeah. You know, mostly it's a matter of trial and error. And even okay. if you, uh, even if a coach, uh, 
integrate some field testing to try to get a sense of whether the how the person is going to respond. That's still trial and error. Right. So uh, the book talks uh, in a couple of sections about fast responders and slow responders right. to exercise. So if you take a group of people, um, males and females, variety of ages, doesn't matter, uh, introduce them to the same training program, you're going to have some who respond very, very quickly. Mm -hmm. And others who are going to take a long, long time to respond. They'll, everybody eventually responds, but those slow responders are the ones who appear to be more sensitive to uh, the overreaching and, and overtraining. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the fast responders are great. They're the ones, obviously, they get the stimulus, they have a fast recovery period, they're ready to go again. Uh, you know, that, that, that's the ideal. Right. Uh, a lot of us are much slower to respond and, and can't withstand, uh, can't withstand a high workload, um, you know, day after day. So thinking about the difference between the two, does, does that imply that slow responders have a lower ceiling for maximal fitness? You know what I mean? No. Okay. No. Not at all. It just, it just uh, indicates that slow responders need more rest and recovery. Okay. Okay. That's as like, as, as I was reading that section, you know, thinking about that again, it's like, you know, if you're in exercise at all, you go through the book, a lot of these things are familiar somewhat intuitively if you've, you know, worked out for any period of time, but then it, it kind of lays it out a little more bare, a little more plain terms when you're like, okay, I, like it, the light turns on, so to speak, where you can see things more plainly. So that's why I saw that. And it's just some of these things kind of come to mind because I did not write the book um, and not capable of writing a book like this. So it's like those questions I haven't thought about before start to come up. Um, and then I, I'm like, I need to get Dr. Bob on and, and ask him all the clarifying questions. Um, well, so you're you're a, you're a, the perfect target audience for the book, right? Because you know you're motivated. You're an athlete. You want to learn more. You want to try to improve. Um, you have a good sense of science. You like science, and so yeah. it's just a matter of um, you know giving you the information you need to to make it worthwhile. Yeah, it and I, you know it's it's definitely I know it's going on my bookshelf, and I've actually already um, even had it. So my other running show where I just talk about running kind of through my experience and research and that kind of stuff. I, uh, it's already been on the shelf behind me for a few episodes as, um, I kind of reference things, but we hadn't had our conversation yet. So I had, wasn't able to reference our conversation, but, um, before we run out of time, I want to get a, a couple more questions out of you. Um, thinking about the section on training in heat versus cold. Um, and I, I believe it mentions, training in heat, although heat degrades our performance uh, faster than training in cold, depending on the temperature, obviously, uh, that the response from training in heat means gener generally better overall fitness regardless of temperature compared to training in cold. Um, since you and I both live in climates that get pretty cold over the wintertime, is there any point or way of trying to continue to train in the heat over the winter or is it a matter of just do your best in adapting to the heat when the summer comes 
Uh, no, it's, there's a real advantage to training in the heat year-round if you can. Okay. Uh, because all the changes that occur to help us adjust, to, to acclimate to the heat, mm -hmm. help improve our fitness. You know, greater blood volume is right. you know, one of the most important ones. Uh, better, able, better ability to sweat and to sweat over more of our body, to lose heat, to keep ourselves cool. Right. All of those are adjustments that help overall performance. So in the, uh, in the cold months, just putting on extra clothes when you work out is enough to cause your body temperature to rise a little bit higher than it normally would. Mm -hmm. and, and that's a great stimulus. Obviously, we, we don't want to overdo that and risk heat illness. Right. But as long as we're you know, sweating and, and uh, our body temperature is going up, we'll gain the, the advantages of improved fitness simply from the training as well as an, uh, an added boost of fitness from staying acclimated to the heat. And it's just all those little nitty gritty things that I, I think add up to getting to each of our individuals, like potential as athletes, right? It's, you know, getting enough sleep, getting enough food, getting enough water. Um, Cause as you mentioned, training hard is probably the least of our worries, but I think there's little stuff like, you know, training in the heat, knowing, hey, if I do acclimate to the heat, I'm probably going to rip reap at least a marginal gain compared to if I say, um, I guess I don't know what the temperatures are in the summer where you are. I'm going to guess they're similar, probably 90s to 100s within the hottest part yeah. of the summer. Um, and if you decide, hey, I'm going to stay inside where it's 70 and it's air conditioned versus I'm going to get outside, you know, I can reap a little more gains by being outside in that environment instead of kind of catering to that, I'll call it lazy mind of, hey, I just want to be cool and not, and, you know, a little more comfortable during this uncomfortable section of training, so. Yeah, well, you know, I, I've seen so many athletes make uh, kind of rookie mistakes with hydration and nutrition and yeah. just training that, uh, you know, I, I really hope that this book can help uh, people avoid some of those, you know, two steps forward, one step back scenarios that a yeah. lot of athletes find themselves in. Yeah. I know for me in particular, I, I think what I'll be using the book for is that even though, as I've mentioned numerous times as talking to you, a lot of these things are somewhat intuitive, but just if I admit to myself that my brain is simply fallible, that I forget things, it's easy to go back to the book and say, wait, Am I right about that thing? Am I remembering that right? Is that what I was actually thinking? And clarify those things quickly to try to keep yourself on track instead of getting off track thinking down the wrong direction. And you're like, oh, no, that doesn't actually make sense. And that's been harming me for whatever period of time. So that's where it, I think it'll be nice for me in particular, where it's like both a quick reference guide, but also enough information to be practically useful, hence a, a practical guide to exercise yeah. physiology. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Hey, listen, I have a, a story for you. Sure. That, that I think uh, sums up uh, a lot of what athletes go through, um, both physically as well as mentally. Uh, and this, uh, this goes way back to a Super Bowl that was held in Atlanta, and I can't remember the year, but one of the perks of working for Gatorade was that I got to go to the Super Bowl mm -hmm. uh, each year. And each year, Gatorade would bring a number of different guests. And uh, the year that we were in Atlanta, one of the guests was the great Ironman triathlete, Mark Allen. Mm -hmm. And um, 
it was a t terrible weather in Atlanta that year. And so there was no way you could exercise outside. So anybody who wanted to, uh, to do, do a workout went to a, a health club that was adjacent to the hotel. And it had a small um, indoor running track, you know, banked, but yeah. it wasn't, wasn't legit in any competitive sort of way, but right. for fitness, you know, you could get on there and run. So I, uh, this is obviously at the end of January, and um, I got on to, to do a workout just to, just to run. And uh, I noticed after I'd run a few laps that Mark Allen was ready to get on the track. And I mm -hmm. thought, oh my God, this is going to be embarrassing. You know, I can't, can't imagine how quickly and how many times he's going to lap me. Right. And uh, so, but I kept running. And the more I ran, the more I realized that he wasn't catching me. In fact, I was catching him. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking, this is what's he is he injured or sick what's the problem here um so later that night i ran into him at a, at a, a cocktail party and i said what you know mark what's the problem are you sick or injured or how you know he said no he said you know every year i start i take a month off or two after the iron man in in kona and uh i don't do anything mm -hmm. and so when i start up again in january which is when, when we were speaking, he said, I, I, I just can't imagine even running a nine minute mile. I mm -hmm. can't do it. And he said, that's the stage I'm in now. I'm, I'm just trying to get out there and put one foot in front of the other. And, you know, mentally I, I'm, you know, I, I know I'm going to have to run six minute miles or, or less if I want to be successful in next year's Ironman. I can't fathom that. Mm -hmm. But I know from experience that it happens to me this year, this way every year. I just need to, to put in the time, put in the effort every day, every week, I'll get a little bit faster and pretty soon it'll all come back. And uh, Mark was also known as a guy who did a lot of training by himself. Mm -hmm. And everybody thought that, you know, he's going up to the mountains or to, you know, altitude or doing some super secret workout that uh, only he knows about. And that's what gives him the advantage. And so we, I talked to him about that. And he said, you know, that's not it at all. He said, I just realized that I have to work most of the time by myself uh, because then I won't be sucked into uh, trying to stay with people who are having a better day than me or feeling as though I need to hold back to stay with people who, are, who aren't as quick. And um, I thought, my goodness, you know, what a smart way to go about uh, mm -hmm. A professional approach to training, realizing what your personal strengths and weaknesses are, and uh, aligning your training program to to maximize those benefits. And very, very um, intuitive and bright guy, and obviously mm -hmm. paid off for him. Yeah. Well, and inside that story is the the whole idea of trusting the process, right? And I think that's especially for young athletes, one of the most difficult things is is knowing you know, down the road, whether it's three months, six months, nine months, 18 months, like you're going to be much better if you just focus on today. Don't worry about, you know, that next champ in his, in his case, you know, nine months down the road, the next championship, just, just work on today. It'll all come together over time. I think that's the toughest part. Yeah. And, and you know, it obviously takes a lot of ex uh, uh, years of experience to know when to push yourself and when you need right. to back off. Right. And as we talked about before, knowing when to back off and actually backing off is very difficult for motivated athletes, but it's yeah. so essential. 
yeah. to allow the body time to adapt. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Bob, as we're starting to run short on time, uh, there's a question I'm asking everybody this season because it transects all sports and disciplines, really. Um, I'd like to know from you, what do you think the purpose of sport is? Wow, that's a, that's a real metaphysical question there. <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. Well, I, you know, from a personal standpoint, I think it uh, uh, should be all about enjoyment and, and uh, setting goals and challenge yourself. You know, for me, it's just a matter of just trying to see um, how far I can push myself, you know, how much I can improve. It's kind of both a physical as well as an intellectual challenge for me, mm -hmm. you know, to try particularly around the, the training aspect of it. Um, and I think from a societal standpoint, it, you know, it's a great sport is a great opportunity for um, a change of mindset, a relief, you know, like going to the movies, mm -hmm. you, know, you, you have a little time out from the, the, the hectic nature and stressful nature of the lives that most of us lead. And it's just a nice breather to enjoy uh, something different and, and marvel in the accomplishments of highly fit, highly talented athletes. Solid answer. Um, Dr. Bob, if people want to pick up the book, get in touch with you, where can they do that? Well, I, you know, I haven't checked Amazon recently, but I'm assuming it's available there. Probably. Or they can go right to the Human Kinetics is the publisher, Human yeah. Kinetics website. Uh, for both, uh, and, and it's, I think, available in Kindle as an ebook, um, but both as the soft cover as well as the ebook, it uh, should be easy to find. Yeah, if, if you're... If you've gotten this far into the interview, then you probably should go ahead and pick up the book. Um, seriously, not just as like a, uh, Dr. Bob's here, so push the book, but in, in all honesty, it's a very, very helpful guide. Um, it, even if you're just training by yourself, you don't have a coach or anything, or maybe in particular, if you don't have a coach, um, it's gonna help you in a lot of ways. So check out that book, pick it up. Dr. Bob, thanks for hanging out with me today. Hey, you're welcome, Jesse. I appreciate it. It was fun. Take care.